This week we're looking, as you see there on the board, in just a second maybe, yes, we're looking at verses 40 to 45 of the first chapter of Mark. Mark 1, 40 to 45 today. So go ahead and find that if you have your copy of God's Word in front of you. If not, there's pew Bibles around. You can surely find one close to you. Mark 1, verses 40 and 45. If you're taking notes today, there won't be much slide notes, so you'll just have to listen well, okay? Just a title and a, and a reference on the screen today. Let's read, though, Mark 1, 40 to 45. We've been working verse by verse through the book of Mark. We started just a few months ago, and here we are at the end of chapter 1, and it says... And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. That's the word of God. Amen. Just to wrap our heads around what's happening here, let's talk about leprosy for a moment. Leprosy, in the modern era, is called Hansen's disease. Have you heard of this, Hansen's disease? It's caused by a certain bacteria. It is still around. We sometimes think leprosy, that's a, something just in Bible times. It is still around. Mostly it manifests itself in places like Africa, India, Brazil. In fact, if you go on the CDC website, there's a page for leprosy. It'll tell you where, what the signs and symptoms are, where, the, where it's most prevalent and so forth. It can involve growths on the skin anywhere discolored patches of skin, numbness in those affected areas, and then it can eventually lead, if it's not treated, it can eventually lead to damaging the nervous system. It can cripple hands and feet, and it could even cause nose disfigurement and facial disfigurement and things like that. Leprosy in the Bible was a little bit broader than just Hansen's disease. It, it, was a, it was a term that was used in a more general sense to encompass many different types of skin diseases, okay? Not just what we call Hansen's disease. Uh, it, could, it could be a number of destructive skin diseases that were contagious on contact. And... At that time, leprosy was considered incurable, no cure. And since they didn't have the same treatments that we have today, people would unfortunately just rot away, basically. 
the disease would overcome them and it would kill them in the majority of cases and it would be a pretty horrific death, painful. And what made things worse was that this particular family of diseases called leprosy, it would also make you ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses. There are very detailed chapters in the book of Leviticus, specifically uh, chapter 13 and 14. They're devoted to diagnosing leprosy and how the priest was to handle that. And I won't take time to go into every detail there. You can read it for yourself sometime. But just in general, if a person had a skin abnormality of some kind come up, they would present themselves to the priest The priest would examine it. Depending on how it looked, they may quarantine that person for seven days. After seven days, they would re-examine, see if it had changed or worsened. They may see fit to quarantine them again for another seven days. All this is in the book of Leviticus. After that, if it had gone away or basically showed no signs of spreading or anything like that, they would be pronounced clean. But if it had spread, or if it worsened, or if there was raw flesh exposed, or any number of other signs that are listed in the passage there in Leviticus, they would be considered leprous, and they would be deemed ceremonially unclean. Now, if you know anything about the ceremonial law, Um, There were certain situations where a person could follow a certain procedure and become clean. Maybe you would wait a certain amount of days after you touched something or went through something in your own life. Then you'd offer a sacrifice or something along those lines and you would be pronounced clean. But leprosy was different. Leprosy had no end. There wasn't anything to get rid of it. So you were perpetually unclean. There was no religious rite to go through, no ceremony to end the uncleanness. The only hope would be that God would miraculously somehow heal, that he would see fit to heal someone, and then they could be pronounced clean. But there was no medical treatment, and so... Just apart from a miracle, these people would just decay away, slowly die of this horrible disease. And here's some of the worst things that would happen due to the ceremonial uncleanness. We're not even talking about the horrific physical aspects, but just thinking of from a ceremonial standpoint, because they were unclean, they could no longer live with their families. Can you imagine that? Can't live with your family anymore. For that matter, you couldn't live anywhere inside the entire camp of Israel. You had to leave the camp, go outside the camp. They were banished to live outside. That was a miserable place to be in. Another thing that they had to do that only deepened the humiliation and the misery was they really couldn't hide their situation. They had to constantly warn people that they had this disease. 
There were different things they had to do uh, visually and audibly to warn anybody who might come close, don't come close to me, I'm unclean, I've got leprosy. Like, um, they would have to wear torn clothes, ragged clothes, so you would know something's wrong with that person, stay away. They had to let their hair hang loose, wasn't fixed, and they had to cover their upper lip like this. When anybody got anywhere close, they would have to yell, unclean, unclean. Brought a lot of shame and humiliation, as you can imagine. So, just to summarize for a minute, they were cut off from everyone, including their families, many times for the rest of their lives cut off from their families. Never going to see them much again. Maybe at a distance or something. And they were even cut off from worshiping God in the ways that he had prescribed them to. They were cut off from any sense of uh, dignity, and there was no hiding what they had. Can you imagine having this disease? Just imagine yourself having this disease. I, I was trying to imagine being diagnosed with this. You know, maybe you're fine one day, and You're not hurting or experiencing any symptoms per se or any pain or anything, but then you just notice a pinkish white patch pop up somewhere on your skin. And you go to the priest, you get it checked out, and they're not sure. They quarantine you for seven days. And eventually, maybe you have to hear the words from the priest of God himself. Sir... Ma'am, you have leprosy, and there is absolutely nothing that we can do about it. May God have mercy on you. What a sinking feeling that would be, wouldn't it? It would basically be a death sentence. Uh, A painful, slow, disfiguring, shameful death away from those that you love, away from God's people, away from God's place of worship. So that is what this guy has who approaches Jesus here in Mark 1.40. Can you sympathize with him? And I think that we can draw some lessons from this encounter. Let's just look at a few. We won't have time for very many. But let's look at some lessons from a leper. Number one... The leper models for us the proper way to approach Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that, but we'll see this in just a second. In a sense, he broke every public safety and social rule that there was for lepers. He's not worried about keeping his distance anymore. He's not worried about yelling unclean. He's not sitting off by himself, just dying somewhere. Somewhere along the way, he heard about this teacher named Jesus. And he heard about the things that Jesus was saying, and he heard about the things that Jesus was doing, and he must have thought, what have I got to lose? I'm dying And according to Luke's account, which we did not read, this man was probably in 
the very advanced stages of leprosy because in Luke 5, 12, it says that he was a man full of leprosy, full of leprosy. He was eaten up with leprosy. But he realizes that his condition is dire. And he knows he's basically a dead man walking, and so he goes to Jesus. And when he finds Jesus, what does he do? Well, for one thing, it says he came imploring him. That means he made a strong request. He poured out his heart to Jesus. This is a way of making a request that just demonstrates how bad off he knew that he was. He knew he didn't have any other hope, in other words. Have you ever come to Jesus like that? Something to ask yourself. Despairing of yourself. Uh, realizing that you are also a dead man walking, a dead woman walking. You've got no other hope. No one else is going to save you. No one else has any solutions for the problem that you have. Especially your biggest one, sin. Jesus is it. Unless you come like that, I'm not sure that you have saving faith. Salvation is only found in Christ alone, right? Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And the apostles taught the same, that there was none other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It's Jesus, only Jesus. And there's a song by that title that says, uh, Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus, only Jesus. Who can command the highest praise? Who has the name above all names? You stand alone, I stand amazed. Jesus, only Jesus. I like that song. We've got to come to Jesus like this leper did. With no other hope. No plan B. Either Jesus will save me or I will perish. That has to be the thought. There is no other way, in other words. We've got to be like Peter who said to Jesus, when Jesus says, are you guys going to go away too? Jesus had taught something a little bit tough. It's in John 6. And some, it says some of the crowd left him. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That has to be our attitude. Where else are we going to go? So he came imploring him. Look also at his posture before Jesus. Mark and Matthew say that he knelt before him. Luke says he fell on his face and begged him. So he fell down in a posture of worship, right? And when we come to Jesus, we must realize who we're coming to. 
This is the sovereign creator, the sovereign sustainer of the universe. He owns everything, including me. Yes, he became a man like us and identified with us, right? But he is no ordinary peer of ours. He's unlike any other. And he deserves our worship. Philippians says every knee one day is going to bow to him. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the one who we come to. He also, this leper also expressed his request to the Lord in a good way. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. In other words, if you want to, Jesus, if it be your will, I know you can make me clean. So implicit in this request is the possibility that Jesus may not want to heal him, right? Perhaps it was God's plan for him to remain a leper for the rest of his life. Can God have good purposes in sicknesses? Of course he can. I know that's hard for us to hear, isn't it? It's hard for all of us to hear, but it's true. Sometimes God brings about the greatest good in our lives through suffering and sickness and pain and trials and so forth. I remember when Paul suffered with some ailment. You remember that? It says he prayed to the Lord to take it away, to be healed of that. And you know what? God never healed him. God chose not to heal Paul. Why? Well, it wasn't because Paul didn't have enough faith. That's a lie from people who misunderstand or twist Scripture. There are people who would say that it is God's will that everyone, that's his people be healed of all their sicknesses, be successful, be prosperous, be healthy, and so forth. Tell that to Paul. God says to Paul, no, Paul, I'm not going to heal you. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you something in your weakness. I'm going to give you my grace. That's what he says. And my grace is going to be sufficient for you, he says. And here's something else. You're going to receive my strength. You don't have any strength, Paul, but guess what? In your weakness, I'm going to give you my strength. And I guarantee you, in the long run, that was better for Paul than healing him. I'm simply just saying that sometimes it's God's will that we remain sick, that we remain suffering for a while. He has his purposes And our place is just to trust him. That's what this leper seemed to understand. We don't know everything that was going through his mind, but his statement's a good one. If it is your will, Jesus, you can heal me. I really want you to, but Lord, your will be done. There's an element of that request that leaves it to the sovereignty of God, right? I think that's a healthy, godly way of making requests to God. Jesus modeled it himself, didn't he? When he's in the garden, he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Or James, when he says, uh, 
You know, we ought not say, I'm going to go do this or that as if we're sure that nothing's going to happen to us. But he says, you should say rather, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. We always should realize that what happens in this world from the greatest of things down to the smallest of things is the prerogative of God. This world is his, right? He does all that he wills with everything that's his. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1 says he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. And we just see these things, I think, in germ form, in microcosm form, in the way that this leper approaches Jesus. If you will, you can heal me. Here's something that is another lesson we can learn from this leper. It's not really about the leper, but uh, it's about Jesus. This is a good question that we all can ask of any passage that we read. What does this text teach me about God? Ask that of any text you read in Scripture and see what it says and what it will teach you about God. Here's one thing that we can find out from Mark 1, 40 to 45. Jesus is full of compassion for the outcast. Amen to that. Everyone else might have been backing up, right? Recoiling. Maybe shouting, Jesus, don't touch him. He's got leprosy. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't back up. Mark says he's moved with pity. He's moved with compassion. He doesn't run away. He doesn't say, whoa, whoa, buddy, back up. Stay right there. He stands there and this dead man walking, is what I'll call him, who's got no one else on earth that can do a thing for him, and he hears Jesus say the words, or he hears, excuse me, Jesus hears the leper say the words, if you want to, you can heal me. And this should never get old to us. Jesus responds with compassion for him. He reaches out and touches the leper. Think about that, by the way. This might have been the first touch by another human that this man has had in many years, perhaps. And it happens to be the touch of Jesus himself, the Savior, full of compassion. That is something we can learn about Jesus here in this passage. And I found it interesting. There's a work by B.B. Warfield called The Emotional Life of Jesus. And he points out that the emotion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus in the Gospels is this one, compassion. You know, we don't get a lot of insight into Jesus' emotional life in the text of Scripture, but where it does talk about his emotions, more often than not, it's about his compassion. And the way Warfield defines compassion for us is it's made up in two parts. He says it's an internal movement of pity and an external act of mercy or kindness. And that's what happens here, isn't it? The pity 
that Jesus has for the outcast man propels him to help him. And we just see that all over the Gospels, by the way. Jesus having compassion. He says he would look upon these large crowds and have compassion on them. He says he's, it says he saw these crowds as sheep having no shepherd. Or he would... And when he saw them, by the way, having no shepherd, what did he do? He acted. He says he, he began teaching them. He began shepherding them. Uh, he witnesses fellow human beings suffering the loss of their loved ones. And it says he would be moved to compassion, even to the point of weeping himself, as he did at the grave of Lazarus. And then what does he do? He raises Lazarus. He did the same for a widow woman. This woman had lost her husband prior, and then she had one son, and he died. And Jesus witnesses his funeral, and it says he had compassion on this woman. And he raises her son and gives her son back to the mother. Wow. Jesus is full of compassion, and I'm glad he is, aren't you? Aren't you glad, by the way, along those lines, that he isn't harsh with people like us? Are you harsh with people sometimes? We all can answer yes to that one. We can sometimes we can sometimes look on people and size them up and think we know everything about them. We think to ourselves, look at them. They must have made some very poor choices to be in that position, as if we know what happened to them, right? When in reality, we have no idea. Or we, in pride, perhaps, assume that, you know, we made better choices than that person. And so, well, they, they kind of made their own bed, so to speak. We can be so prideful sometimes. We can be pityless, can't we? Compassionless people. But it's just an absolute breath of fresh air to see that Jesus had pity on sufferers, pity on outcasts, and pity on sinners like us. Many of you are uh, following the Bible reading plan that we gave out at the beginning of the year. Some of you are doing that, and it's been great. This past week, we read through the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. And in the last few verses of Micah, we read this. An absolutely precious passage to sinners like us. It says, Micah 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's our God, full of compassion. One time in Luke, Jesus looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over it because they would not recognize that their Messiah was here. 
the compassion of Jesus. Here's what Thomas Goodwin said about this. I've quoted him several times. He's a wonderful preacher, writer from the 17th century. He said this about Jesus' compassion towards sinners. Listen to this. There is comfort in that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ takes part with you and is far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more toward you. And he uses an illustration His pity is increased the more toward you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his own body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but he hates the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What shall not make for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? I love that illustration. God doesn't look upon his people, his sons and his daughters, with disgust and anger. We're like the son, Thomas Goodwin says, that has a terrible disease. A father doesn't look at that diseased child and hate the child, right? He hates the disease that's hurting the child. He wants to get rid of the disease. And it moves him to pity this hurting and suffering child. Our sins do that, says Thomas Goodwin. So for the repentant sinner, is who I'm talking about, God is not against us. He's against our sin to rid us of it. But if you're not repentant, well, that's another story, isn't it? If you refuse his son, if you refuse the gospel, then that warrants his anger. That warrants his wrath. But when somebody comes to Christ in repentance and faith, they are the recipient like this leper, of Jesus' compassion and mercy. Amen. Where is it that we see uh, Jesus' compassion the most? Isn't it most clearly demonstrated at the cross? But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. What kind of love does he have? What kind of compassion does he have? Well, his actions demonstrate it. We sang it earlier. What love, my God, would hold you to the tree to bear that overwhelming debt for me? The Son of Heaven leaves the Father's side. The healer bleeds. The life was made to die. Oh, praise the King who came into the world in his love like a mighty flood. Like this leper, when we come to Jesus in faith, we don't get rejected. We don't get held at arm's length. 
We don't get shunned. He doesn't. I've said this before. This is the picture that I get when I'm trying to communicate this concept. He's not holding his nose. He's not looking at us funny. None of our mess surprises him in one bit. It doesn't catch him off guard. We're what he came for, sinners. What a glorious Savior. He came to save sinners. And just like he cleansed the leper, he cleanses us when we come to him. And I notice here from Mark that the cleansing was immediate and complete. He says, immediately the leprosy left him. And when Christ cleanses us, it's the same way, isn't it? It's immediate and it's thorough. He doesn't say things like, okay, now I've started you down the path of righteousness. You just need to complete it. And at the end of your life, we'll evaluate it. We'll see where you've gotten to, and then we'll decide if that's good enough to be accepted. It's not the gospel. God justifies the repentant sinner instantaneously, in an instant. It is a legal pronouncement by God himself. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so. Teaches it over and over again that we are justified, meaning we're, this is how we're made right with God in a legal sense in heaven. It says we're made right with God, justified by faith. Just one example, Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So I'm just saying that just like the healing and the cleansing of this leper was immediate and thorough, so is salvation. What a blessing it is that the child of God does not have to live their life wondering if they'll be good enough at the end. They are evaluated on the basis of Christ's merit, not yours. Are you thankful for that? Oh, boy. Praise the Lord. This makes for assurance of salvation. It's not based on what I've done Or what I've failed to do, praise the Lord, is based on the one who did it all, Jesus Christ. One more lesson for today, then we'll end. Here's a lesson we can learn from the leper's actions that came after his cleansing. It's kind of a negative example, if you noticed it. Disobedience always has consequences. (laughs) What does Jesus tell this man very clearly not to do? He very sternly and forcefully tells this man, only go to the priest and present yourself to them as it's prescribed in the law of Moses. Don't go telling everybody. Just go to the priest. And by doing that, by the way, Jesus was probably giving this man to the priest as a testimony against the priest who did not believe in Jesus, by the way, And it was a testimony to them to say, Jesus is the real deal. Look at this man who just was healed by him. 
I don't think there were too many lepers knocking down the priest's door saying, Priest, I'm healed. No more leprosy. And so this man was to be a, a living, breathing testimonial to them, to the power and the legitimacy of what Jesus was doing and what he was preaching. But we, I'm sure, I do, I'm sure we all have some of this in our hearts. We probably have mixed feelings a little bit here, don't we? We could probably understand this man's zeal to tell everybody what happened to him, right? I mean, how was he supposed to keep something like that to himself? But uh, as hard as it is for us to imagine, what he should have done was obey Jesus. Jesus gave him a direct, clear command, and he disobeyed. And his disobedience had consequences. What happened as a result of that? It hindered the Lord's work to an extent. It didn't hinder it in an ultimate sense, of course, but it did affect it negatively because the text says Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. It says he had to stay out in desolate places. He couldn't go around preaching as freely as he once did. Now, I don't want to come down too hard on this man's sin as if he's the only one because guess what? We do the same thing. But I think we can learn a lesson from that, that maybe it's let's obey Christ even when we don't understand the why of the command. Or when we're tempted to think, surely I'm exempt from that command. The Lord knows my situation. It's not exactly that, Lord. I'm sure I'm exempt from that one. I mean, this leper may have thought something similar I know he told me not to, but surely he was just, surely that was just him being humble by not asking me to tell everybody. He's just being humble, but he really doesn't mind if I go spreading the word. I'm sure he'll understand. I mean, if if Jesus was a leper, I'm sure he would go tell everybody if he was healed, right? Maybe he thought something like that. We don't know for sure, but I know that that self, that type of self-justification describes us many times. We're very skilled at self-justification, aren't we? There's a reason Jesus has to warn us um, about judging others and not judging ourselves. Or there's a reason Jesus has to warn us about looking at the little speck in our brother's eye when there's a log in our own we can find umpteen reasons why we are the exception to whatever rule, right? And surely Christ will understand if we disobey him in some particular area because after all, he knows my situation. I think he's okay with me handling it this way. We justify our sin. And really, every sin that we commit, there's a germ of that attitude in it, isn't there? I mean, in that moment where we're deciding to sin, where we're choosing to sin, we have convinced ourselves in that moment, at least, that we're actually justified in doing what we're about to do. Somehow, we know better than God in this instance. And that will always come back to bite us. Not just us, but people around us as well. Like it did here. Sin has consequences every time, doesn't it? And I... 
I do find it interesting, though, after all that, after his disobedience, in the aftermath of his sin, Jesus and the leper have effectively switched places. Before, the leper was the one having to stay out in desolate places, right? He had to keep away, but then after he's healed, Jesus is the one having to stay out in desolate places. And isn't that what Jesus does, by the way? He takes the outcast place. He takes the sinner's place. Praise God that he did that. So I hope we can learn a few lessons from, the, from this first century leper. There's way more I'm sure we could learn if we meditate on it a little further. Maybe you can do that this week. Just know this. Come to Jesus in your shame, all your shame, and in your disgrace. Come acknowledging who he is in a worshipful attitude acknowledging that he's the sovereign ruler of the world. Don't act like he owes you anything but justice. And in coming that way, you'll find a Savior full of compassion and mercy and a Savior who is not repulsed by all your sins but instead is drawn to you so that he can heal you. That's why he came, to save sinners, to heal those who are sick, spiritually speaking. Now, these things are cause for rejoicing this morning, aren't they? I don't know if any of you came um, numb this morning. Life has a way of making us numb sometimes. I don't know if any of you came cold in heart or numb or preoccupied with something in your thoughts, but I just pray these things, the Word of God will chip away at that iciness around the heart. And I hope maybe he's warmed them and that's melting a little bit by this picture of his compassion and his mercy to the lowest of society, the lowest of humankind. Those who are cut off from God and cut off from the world are reconciled through this Savior, full of compassion, the Savior Jesus Christ. I'll close with these words. I think they sum up this incident and how it relates to us. So, well, you've heard these words before. Shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. Since I've met this blessed Savior, since he's cleansed and made me whole, oh, I will never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity rolls. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened and now I know. He touched me and made me whole. Father, we thank you for this word from the text of Mark. Picturing your cleansing and your healing in the book of Mark. We see, Lord, that it relates so well to what you've done for spiritual lepers like us. We thank you that, you that you had compassion on us when we were without hope and lost in our sin. 
Lord, we owe our salvation 100% to your grace. And Lord, unlike that particular situation in Mark, you have not restricted who we can tell. Instead, you said, preach it everywhere. Preach it to everybody far and wide. So our sin, Father, would be to fail to share this glorious news about this healing that he will offer. Lord, may your grace and your gospel be like a blowtorch on our cold hearts to just inflame them to worship more deeply and to obey more fully. Get glory through us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.